Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the Hewlett Foundation and the Capsinol Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm Jonathan Sterwald. To open or not to open? That's the question facing many California school districts trying to figure out when to reopen schools for in-person instruction. And the clock is ticking towards February 1st. That's the first deadline imposed by Governor Newsom. Districts that agree by then to start sending their elementary school students back to schools for in-person instruction in February and in March will qualify for some of the $2 billion that the governor is offering. That's under the new plan that he put forward just before New Year's Eve. It's a thorny proposition in general as COVID cases explode across the state. Big question is, does the risk of going back to school outweigh the rewards that the governor is putting on the table and, of course, the rewards to kids and families and teachers who would be back in school? The plan is called Safe Schools for All, and there appears to be skepticism that's growing, particularly among some of the largest urban districts. Today, we'll discuss the governor's plan with the superintendent of one of those districts, Fresno Unified Superintendent Bob Nelson. He signed a letter along with six other superintendents criticizing the plan in a strongly worded letter they sent to Governor Newsom last month. And we'll get a different perspective from Dr. Jean Noble. She's a professor of emergency medicine at the UCSF School of Medicine, and she's also a Berkeley parent who argues it is safe to send students back to school even when the infection rates are relatively high, which they are now. John, I should clarify that Governor Newsom's plan is really an optional one. School districts don't have to participate, but as you mentioned, is putting some money on the table as an incentive. The strategy is to encourage districts to open their schools beginning next month, mid-February, for students in the youngest grades, K-2 grades, and then grades 3 to 6 by March 15th. He's also offering extra money, as much as $700 per student, to districts that meet the deadlines that he's outlined and also meet a slew of health and safety requirements. And these requirements include testing students and teachers as often as weekly when infection rates are high in the so-called deep purple zone. It is a tall order, Lewis. One physician who believes that kids can and should return to school in February is Jean Noble. She is Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at UC San Francisco School of Medicine, and she's the Director of COVID Response for the UCSF Emergency Department. She argues that California schools should be the first sector of the economy to reopen and the very last to close. Welcome, thank you for joining us, Dr. Noble. Good morning, thank you for having me. We're now seeing the highest levels of infection and the most deaths and intensive care usage since the start of the pandemic. Is it safe to return now? It is. We have a lot of data, actually, from around the country, some data from right here in California, that schools can be operated safely. We have Marin County here in the Bay Area, essentially the only county that has opened its schools. They have about 40,000 kids back in school, about 5,000 teachers, accumulation of a 450,000 student days since September, and they have had seven campus-based transmissions during all of that time, and they have remained open. Our public health officials have exempted schools from the stay-at-home order, and schools have been allowed to remain open, and they're continuing to operate safely. There's quite a good deal of research, uh, well-publicized, that kids are not at greatest risk for contracting the virus. But what about the adults? I mean, teachers and other school staff are very concerned. 
we've been told by the state, stay at home, don't mix with other families. And so it seems like teachers and other staff are understandably concerned. That's right. You know, back in March when we closed our schools, we did that because we thought kids would be the main drivers of this pandemic. We thought that they would get COVID more often and spread it more often, get sick more often, as they do with the flu. And so that's why schools were closed. We've learned since then that kids are not the drivers of this disease. They get it far less frequently than adults do. But that begs the question of what happens to the adults on campus. We have teachers, we have administrative staff. Can teachers be kept safe? Yes, we have data that suggests that. There's actually 100,000 people who have been back in school in North Carolina over the last nine weeks, 90,000 kids, 10,000 teachers, and that's K through 12. During those nine weeks, they had exactly 32 campus-based transmissions. Those numbers are tiny. The governor's plan brings back students K through six, and there's no mention yet of middle school and high school. When should they return, and is there a difference in that risk between the younger students and older students? I have to say I'm not in agreement with the governor's strategy. The reason K through 6 are being rolled out first is because the younger you are, the lower your COVID risk. But that's not to say that middle schoolers and high schoolers are so high risk that they should wait even longer to open their doors. In fact, returning to the Marin County data, among those 40,000 students who are back, we have four high schools. There have been zero cases of campus-based transmission in those four high schools that have been open since September. The majority of those 40,000 are middle schoolers, just demographically, that's the way it shakes out in Marin. So lots and lots of data that middle schools and high schools can be operated safely. And frankly, it is not an evidence-based decision to make middle schools and high schools wait behind K through six. But just let me ask you on that, because I think one of the things when you think about high schools, students are going from classroom to classroom, thousands of kids, often crowded hallways, etc. So yes, from, you know, high schoolers are more likely to get COVID than fifth graders, for sure. They're also going to mix more. So is it still safe? Look at schools that have opened and they have done it successfully. So the answer to that is yes. And this is just a testimony to the power of masks and social distancing. If everyone wears a mask, that's absolutely crucial. You need 100% mask use. Everyone wears a mask and you, you follow social distancing rules of a minimum of three feet, ideally up to six feet, there will be very, very low levels of infections, as we've seen in counties that have actually opened their schools. We're now starting the vaccination of teachers, and you and others wrote in a recent op-ed that we shouldn't wait for all teachers to be vaccinated to return to school. Why is that? Because it's not necessary. So masks and social distancing are really on par with the efficacy of vaccines. Uh, The standard mask that people wear, cloth mask, protects you from about 70% of COVID transmissions. Backing up three feet, three to six feet, gives you another 20% or so. So that's essentially equivalent to the protection that we get with a vaccine. Kids have been out of school almost, we're coming up on a year now. So waiting for the vaccine is simply not necessary because we have the data that schools can be operated safely with the tools we currently have in our toolkit. That's not to say that teachers should not be bumped to the front of the line in the 1B category. Uh, We are all for early vaccination of teachers and support that. We just don't think that should be a requirement to return to the classroom. One of the aspects of the governor's plan is intense COVID testing. 
and it's tied to the rate of infection in the area, the county. And it could be as often as weekly for students and for teachers. Can you overtest relative to the value it provides? Because one of the problems is districts are arguing it's very expensive and logistically difficult now to set this up from start within the next several weeks. I am all for testing. I think it provides a great deal of reassurance to teachers, but it has to be done wisely. And that's to say, if you do weekly testing when community prevalence is low, you have a real risk of your number of false positives, meaning you get a positive test result, you think you have COVID, the test was inaccurate. When you test broadly and the prevalence is low, you're likely to get more false positives than true positives. And you think students should also be tested? Yeah, I think there's a strong argument for universal testing of high school students. High school students have a lower risk of infection and transmission than adults do, but that difference between a high school student and an adult is far less than it is between a grade school student and an adult. So if you're going to do universal testing, the place to start is with your high school students. And, you know, if you can pull it off, middle school students would be next in line. Elementary school students would be the lowest priority just because their likelihood of having COVID and transmitting it is low to begin with. Clearly, there are going to be a lot of parents and students who will not go back to school. It seems like inevitably we're going to have a mix of some students in school and some at home. It seems like this will be really tough for a lot of school districts to handle. There will always be students and families that need to sit out, and teachers too. So people who have pre-medical conditions that make them at higher risk for COVID, students and teachers alike. So, so schools will have to continue to use a hybrid setup where they teach kids in person and remotely, but ideally simultaneously. I think one of the things that teachers are very concerned about is that when we bring kids back to school in person, is that going to effectively increase the length of their workday. And the last point I'll make about schools returning and scheduling is that the data that we have now suggests that a shortened school week is not a, a risk reduction strategy. That is, kids' behaviors are generally better in terms of COVID control when they're in the classroom. Where we see breaches in mask use and social distancing are in the out-of-school activities. So early on in this pandemic, we thought we would just decrease kids' risk of exposure by decreasing the number of days they were back on campus. Now, we know that actually the inverse of that is likely true. The more the kids are on campus during the week, the lower their overall COVID risk because they are better supervised when they are on that campus, supervised by an adult, enforced mask use, enforced social distancing, which should be a relief to schools. So the sooner they can get back to something like a five day a week schedule, doing simultaneous teaching for those who are in person and those who are remote, uh, the safer all campuses will be. Well, that does seem counterintuitive, but as you explained it, uh, it seems to make sense. So thank you so much, Dr. Jean Noble. She's Professor of Emergency Medicine and Director of COVID Response for the UCSF Emergency Department. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, John, no question that uh, in an ideal world, everyone would like to see kids back in school. But uh, the heads of the seven urban districts that you referred to before call Newsom's plans unrealistic. They say it deprives funding to districts 
that won't be able to return to school anytime soon because of high infection rates, and those tend to be in low-income areas of the state. They also worry about the short amount of time districts would need to set up the testing regimen and negotiate an agreement with their teachers' union, which, uh, as we mentioned, the deadline to do that would be just over two weeks away. To hear directly from one of the superintendents, we're pleased to have with us Superintendent Bob Nelson from Fresno Unified. Welcome, Superintendent Nelson. Always a pleasure, Lewis, to be with you and John. Well, thanks so much. And let's just jump in. You were one of the signatories, uh, seven superintendents, who wrote a letter to Governor Newsom outlining a number of criticisms of his Safe Schools for All plan. We don't have time to go through all of them, but what's your main objection to the plan? I think one of the things that's been most difficult for us is since March, the cross comparatives between how every local municipality and district has organized themselves in a response to the pandemic has been really, really difficult. I think what it's come down to is each of the 1,037 school districts across our state is having to do a collective bargaining process to figure out what they consider, quote unquote, safe to be. And I think that adds a lot of complexity and confusion. And then having you know, disparate school districts implement in different ways just creates no end of drama. And that's just hard. And so we one of the requests we've had is to say, hey, are there statewide standards for what constitutes safe that might all of us might adhere to? I think you probably heard Governor Newsom's comments last week. He made a very impassioned plea. He says this is a basic principle, a collective bargaining, having all the voices at the table. He doesn't believe in top-down mandates. And so he feels that, you know, Teachers and everybody, workers need to be at the table. I don't disagree with that. I mean, we're in the unique position of a major urban of actually having a memorandum of understanding negotiated with our labor partner. It just doesn't bear any directional connection to what the governor released as as advisory. Um, The plan calls for additional revenue to go to those districts that can create a memorandum of understanding, which codifies the language which they have, which is that you go back at 28 cases per 100,000 and below. Well, I mean, we've hard fought conversations in collective bargaining with our labor partners since October. So the thought that we would go back now, having negotiated agreement, hard fought with, as you described, Lewis, every voice possible at the table, and then go back and create another agreement, which is going to be solemnized and completed by January 31st is just... But you say you now have an agreement. Why would you have to go back now under the governor's plan? Because our agreement calls for a return, the similar phased-in return with the little kids beginning first, but ours contemplates going back in the orange tier. Theirs contemplates going back once you're out of what's described as deep purple, right? If I turn to my labor partners and say, hey, we think 28 is the number around which you could still go back, they're going to look at me like I have two heads because a long time we were fighting about the difference between red and purple, which is in the seven. Like the numbers we're talking about are seven cases per 100,000. In Fresno, as of this week, our case counts per 100,000 is actually 76. If state regulation can say, hey, we can codify 25 and constitute that it's safe and that's grounded in medical fact, that would add value for me. Bob, I imagine most teachers want to get back into the classroom. I mean, no teacher wants to be out doing distance learning. So the disagreement is not whether they want to come back, but under what conditions? That's exactly right. I mean, I think 
I have a huge number of teachers that are actually teaching from their classrooms every day, even though we're still in a distance learning mode. They feel most comfortable in that environment. They want to have kids back. And to make no mistake, we have had kids back. We had small cohorts all the way up until um, the real surge time. And we're going to bring those small cohorts back even while we're in the double-digit numerals in purple. Same thing. We have a in part of our negotiated agreement with our labor partner is that we have the opportunity to bring back kids who are just in need of extra help. So, But what we're really talking about is when do we go back en masse? Like when do we open the doors and say we are officially open? And we're, we've used orange as the benchmark. I've not been sorry. I actually feel like that's been a good strategy because we've not set arbitrary dates. And it's not lost on me. I get that kids are not catching COVID. And we don't actually have a great deal of transmission in the classroom between kids and adults. But make no mistake, like I'm losing staff members who are passing as a result of COVID um, who are in those classifications of being you know, older or having other comorbid conditions. I had a beautiful teacher at one of our local middle schools, very beloved got cancer, was dealing with the cancer, and things were moving forward, got COVID and passed. Did she pass of COVID? No, she passed of cancer. But did she pass of COVID? Yes, because had it not been from COVID, she was actually making headway and moving backwards. So it's just much more complex than, hey, we'll incentivize this with dollars. Go back February 15th. Oh, and by the way, you just need an approved MOU by the end of the month. That strikes me as more political theater than it does a really viable pragmatic solution. It's hard. Well, we've been talking with Bob Nelson, superintendent of Fresno Unified. Uh, got a tough few weeks coming up to, as you and almost everyone in schools around the state try to get through this very difficult period and try to get kids back to school. Thanks for talking with us today. Always a distinct pleasure. Thanks. So the big question, Lewis, is whether Governor Newsom will be willing to replace local collective bargaining agreements for the sort of agreements that are left to district to control. The big urbans, that's what they want him to do because they've been unable to reach the agreement. So they say, Governor, you know, you should set the standards and then we'll do what you say. Well, John, you said it's a big question. Well, I think it's not. I didn't see that it's a big question with Governor Newsom. He made it really clear in his briefing late last week that uh, he thinks it's important to have everybody at the table, including workers, and that he did not think it was the right way to go to impose some kind of top-down mandate on school districts. Yeah, well, the question now really is not what the governor wants to do. He's made it really clear. The question now goes to the legislature. This money that the governor is proposing, the $2 billion, he wants the legislature to take quick action. So maybe there's going to be a compromise over the next couple of weeks. We'll see. But it is now before the legislature and there will be some hearings next week. Well, I'm sure this all this back and forth and the legislative maneuverings and behind-the-scenes discussions must be super frustrating to many parents and students who would love to be back in school. But then we also have to remind ourselves that many parents and students don't feel comfortable going back to school. Many moving parts, Lewis, and it's very complicated. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>